This is Radio Stockdale. Welcome to Ethics in the Naval Warrior. I'm your host, Michael Sears, at the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership. Our guest is a registered architect in the state of Maryland and has served as the Deputy for Facilities and Construction at the Naval Academy since 2006. Prior to that, she was involved in the design of the Bancroft Hall Center section consisting of Memorial Hall, the Rotunda, and Smoke Hall. She was also the construction manager for the Robert Crown Sailing Center and the Jewish Chapel and Levee Center. Earlier in her career, she was involved in the design of multiple government agency facility projects in the Washington, D.C. area. I choose to call her the architect of the Naval Academy. Welcome, Sarah Phillips. Thank you. Sarah, it's great to have you here, especially as that architect of the Naval Academy. Let's let's take that word architect and kind of wrap it around who we are as a client or as the Naval Academy. Can, can you tell me how architecture speaks to who we are as an institution? Yeah, it's one of the most important things I think about our architecture here because it reflects our missions so well. It's formal, right? Our, our buildings are very formal architecture style. Um, they come out of a very classic architectural tradition. And, and that reflects the traditions, the sense of kind of formality of our mission, the, the importance of our mission. What I think is so successful about this, this marriage between our campus and our mission is the monumentality of our buildings matches the monumentality of our mission. And that's very successful here. You know, I I like the fact that a lot of the concept of the Naval Academy kind of arises out of uh, a century ago, right? Yes. But you and, and your colleagues have been able to pull that forward into the 70s and now into the 2000s in terms of keeping that design center in a sense, but making sure it's relevant to today. Yeah, that's, it's a very important aspect of what we do. The term of art that we follow, and really this has become our tradition on the campus, is to let the buildings be of their time and place. So that phrase, be of their time and place, is really reflected in all of the 1960s era buildings, you know, Michelson Chauvenet, Rick Nimitz. And, and how they developed into the look and feel of the buildings that were added in the 80s and 90s. Lejeune Hall was added in 1981, and then Alumni Hall was added in 1992. Uh, what's really important is, is that, that piece of that phrase, of, of its place. The buildings have to look like they're of this campus and that they fit into the context of the campus, and that's really important to us. So if you look at how the 1960s and 70s buildings were treated architecturally, they reflect Bancroft Hall. You you sort of look at the roof style. It's a modern treatment of the Bancroft roof, the mansard roof, the, the window treatment, the scale of the buildings, the use of materials. Those all tie back to Bancroft Hall in such a successful way and the scale of the buildings also looks back to Bancroft. So I think all, all these modern interventions that we've been adding to the campus over the course of our history are successful in that respect. They, they reflect their 
the time in which they were built. You can clearly see those buildings were built in the 1970s. They're the, they're the monumental style architecture of, the, of that time period. But they, I think, through a very successful scale, very successful massing of the buildings, and that means height, the, the size of it, the overall breadth of it, the space between the adjacent buildings, you can compare that back to Bancroft very directly and see the correlations so successfully. So let's take it back, Sarah, to its beginnings. How did the campus grow over time as the brigade grew? It's, it's so fascinating to me to, to look at these documents to see how it grew and why it grew. I, I um, really like looking at the original documents because I think that's where you get the best context for why it changed and how it changed. Um, there, were, there were two major contributors for how we changed, and that was we, we annexed a lot of land. We, were, we started adding land to our campus um, in the 1840s, right after the Naval Academy was formed in 1845, we almost immediately started adding land to that parcel of nine acres. So that tradition of adding land carried on through the um, 1800s. The last major parcel um, that was added was 1902 to support the campus that we know today. Um, that, that formed really the boundary along King George Street. It, it formed the boundary on the upper yard. Um, so that, that's the campus we know today was the 1902 final land addition. And, and that has, to me, character and leadership implications, especially with a neighbor, the city of Annapolis and the folks who live there, right? Very big, yeah. So as we were annexing land, of course, People were displaced from their homes, from their businesses. Um, that partnership with the city was very important. And even today, that, that relationship remains very important. But back when you look at those documents of city council deliberating on the sale of that land and how it would be annexed and how those residents would be relocated, there was a lot of leadership on both sides of that, of that partnership. Um, on the city side as well as the the Navy side, looking at how to do that ethically, how to do it successfully, make sure that people had a place to relocate to, and that um, neighborhoods were viable where they were where they were relocating to. Um, so that that was a, a strong leadership on both sides of of that equation. And and there's impacts, of course, uh, in so many different ways. We try to do our best, but sometimes we we fail at that. There was another uh, opportunity to annex some more land from uh, Annapolis, right, that uh, we actually didn't go forward with. There were a couple. There was one uh, in the 1960s, Ben Morrell, Admiral Ben Morrell led a master planning effort um, that was looking at how to annex land behind the chapel. So it's it's that neighborhood of historic homes directly behind the chapel that would it would have taken out that block of that couple of blocks of home over to the King George Street boundary, and it would have connected the lower portion of King George boundary with the upper portion of the King George Street boundary. When you look at that neighborhood, there are some very important historic homes there. One of them was the home of Thomas Stone. He was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. That home it was built in the 1770s, 
really important historic home. And then, and then you look around the rest of that neighborhood and you can see other important architectural, colonial architecture examples that really the city decided at that time, preservation was really important. It was becoming important here. There was a there was a woman, Anna St. Clair Wright, who was very active at that time. She was very well regarded among preservationists. She led the fight to preserve that, save that piece of historic Annapolis. And the Navy backed off that plan and said, there, there are other ways we can do this. So again, that, that kind of leadership of let's look at another way to do this without ruining our relationship with the residents that support this institution and the city that we have such an important relationship with. So that was a strong leadership kind of repositioning in the 60s. That's interesting. That implication was that the Naval Academy actually has been a significant factor in the development of uh, the preservation of Annapolis itself. It definitely has been. And I, I think that there's a lot of writing that you can refer to where the faculty here over the course of our institution, the history of our institution, they valued the not only the kind of personal relationships of the city, but also the traditions of architectural, the dignity of the city, you know, the architectural dignity of colonial Annapolis and how that could be used to train and refine, you know, the demeanor of officers that we are training to go into the fleet and into the Marine Corps. That was valued over time. So the sense of the city, the sense of the dignity of it, the sense of being the seat of the state capital, that was important to this institution from, I think, really from day one. You know, I want to talk about Wesley Brown and Hopper Hall for a second, but I want to stay on what you just talked about in terms of how the academy, the facility, the grounds itself shape the future of the Naval Academy. Hopper and Brown are major decisions that you've been involved with. There are a couple of things that are going on right now. Even naming uh, is an issue, and that actually helps shape the future of the Naval Academy and the midshipmen as they graduate. It sure does. And we looked really carefully at the naming of Hopper Hall. There were a lot of really viable and potential, you know, potentially very successful names floated in that process. We really liked naming it after Grace Hopper because we were just coming up on the anniversary of women arriving at the Naval Academy. So this is, this is 2016 when we were making, trying to make decisions and recommendations to the CNO about what to name Hopper Hall. The timing of that was so nice in terms of tying into our history. 2016 was the 40th anniversary of women arriving at the Naval Academy as, as midshipmen. So we wanted to celebrate women that year and we wanted to celebrate their involvement in the brigade and how that changed the traditions of the brigade. So that was a really important year. And the, the decision to include Hopper's tradition in that year and by announcing it was really important to me as a woman here and important, I think, to a lot of women who have gone through this institution and recognized the kind of the history of that and, and the the early sacrifices that they made to kind of assimilate into the brigade in, in an awkward, at that time, a somewhat awkward, you know, time in, in the history of, of women here. Naming is important, um, as you well know, because you're involved with this in a sense. 
uh, the naming of other places around the Naval Academy. You want to take a second and talk about uh, where we are right now with things like Buchanan and Murray? And- sure, sure. We've got a couple of Confederate um, named buildings. We have uh, Murray Hall, which is an academic building. Mari was a lead oceanographer in the Navy, made a very important contribution to the Navy. The building was named after him very early in the establishment of this current campus. He left the Naval Academy to join the Confederate Army, and and that's where the, the rub is with his name remaining on the building at this point in our history. Buchanan, similar story. Buchanan was superintendent, first superintendent of the Naval Academy. He had a very strong history here and resigned his commission, joined the Confederate Army and uh, served the Confederate Army. So those are the two names that we're dealing with from a, a Confederate renaming. There, There is a commission looking at that and they'll make recommendations to the CNO and to the Secretary of the Navy, ultimately to Congress. On where to go with those, they they are they have scheduled a visit to the Naval Academy to take a look at those buildings and to learn more about our history on them. Let me segue now and ask you about other ways to increase or decrease the footprint of the Naval Academy. I, this is a way to get to climate change and the fact that Hopper Hall especially was built clearly with the idea that sea level rise is a factor in the architecture. Uh, Can you say something about that and how the Naval Academy is changing to meet these new demands? And by the way, the reason I'm bringing that up is the United States Naval Service is about projecting power, but it's also about projecting influence. And if, in fact, we perceive that sea level is a factor in the political military environment going forward, we need to we need to respect that. Hopper is part of that, right? Well, Hopper, we we flood proofed Hopper. We didn't create a seawall. There's a little bit of a misunderstanding about what that base of Hopper actually does. It's a flood-protected wall and will stand up against stormwater, but it's not a seawall. So different from the boundaries around the yard where you have an actual seawall that is designed to hold back rising waters due to tidal or climate change, that building is flood-protected to about about 10 feet. When, when you look at it from ground, it's 10.8 feet above high mean sea level, or, or we call it NAVD 88 is the technical term for for our sea level. Mm-hmm. It's, it's protected 10 feet, 10.8 feet above the NAVD 88. It's about seven, eight feet above road level. So when you take the skin of the building off, you can see that it's been waterproofed against a storm surge to that level but it's not designed to hold back like a sea level or have sea waters or waterways sitting against it for a long period of time, like a a seawall is. Though to your point, we're looking at sea level rise, climate change issues here very carefully. We're surrounded by water. It's a big issue here. We formed a group called the Sea Level Rise Advisory Council in 2015, and it includes faculty members from oceanography, uh, naval architecture. It includes facilities people from the Naval Facilities Command. It includes City of Annapolis because they're such a big partner in this. We share waterfront and we're, we share this problem. So we've been working collectively on this issue since 2015. Our faculty led the look at the scientific data and helped us understand how that applies to Annapolis very specifically. 
we are not interested in solving the worldwide Navy's problems. We're, we're looking very specifically at our, our base here in Annapolis. Um, so we, we narrowed our charter really just to the Annapolis waterfront and, and the regional kind of issues that are that sea level rise is, is factoring in here. We, we are developing a plan right now. We, so we, we did a deep dive into all the scientific data with the help of our faculty and then published a report that really outlined what we think is applicable from that data to our, our scenarios here. Right now, we're taking that data and applying it to facilities projects, and we're developing really what the campus will look like over the next 100 years and what are the projects we need to undertake to protect the campus. We definitely feel that the campus can be protected, that there are engineering solutions that can be put in place that don't sacrifice our relationship to the water, our views to the water, our very, you know, the reason why we're here, our ability to train on the water, our ability to get back and forth from the water, that's important. And we don't want to sacrifice that as, as we protect the campus. So this concept of time and place still applies to even these kind of very heavy engineering solutions of what's appropriate here, what, is, what will protect our mission, assist our mission in persevering here under these kind of very important threats, and what, what are the things that we need to be kind of factoring in to make these solutions be of this time and place and protect us into the future. Sarah Phillips, the architect of the Naval Academy, it sounds like you've got a full-time job for a long time going forward, especially as you're absolutely right, we need to reflect the Navy and the Marine Corps' relationship with the sea. And as the sea changes, we have to change. Thanks a lot for joining us. You bet. Thank you. You've been listening to Ethics in the Naval Warrior, a series of podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership at the United States Naval Academy. You can hear more podcasts at stockdalecenter.com slash podcasts.